From Public Radio International, this is The World. A co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. It's Thursday, October 25th. I'm Marco Werman. Syria's rebels reportedly make big gains in the fight for Aleppo. This observer says it could be a watershed moment. If the opposition can win in Aleppo, that'll be a major change. Also today, what's happening with car sales in Europe? One day after announcing a plant closing in Belgium, Ford says it's closing two facilities in Britain. Plus, Mitt Romney wants more free trade with Latin America. My first reaction was, well, what would the plan be? That's all ahead on The World. PRI's The World is made possible in part by the Medtronic Foundation, presenting the Save a Life Simulator, an interactive online experience designed to teach the public life-saving responses to sudden cardiac arrest. Each day, thousands die from cardiac arrest. Learn how to respond at heartrescuenow.com. And by WGBH, producers of Market Warriors. From the people that brought you Antiques Roadshow, four pickers scour flea markets nationwide, hoping to out-profit their competitors at auction. Don't miss Market Warriors, Monday night at 9, 8 central on PBS. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. In Syria, the scales may have been tipped today in the Battle of Aleppo. Control of Syria's largest city is seen as critical to the survival of the regime of Bashar al-Assad. But now rebel fighters have reportedly seized three key neighborhoods in the north and west of the city. The occupation came on the eve of a four-day ceasefire for the Muslim holiday of Eid al-Adha. Throughout the conflict, government restrictions have made it hard to know for sure what's going on inside Syria. Today, we called a couple of experts with good contacts inside the country. Amr al-Azam is a prominent member of the Syrian opposition here in the U.S. and a professor at Shawnee State University. And Joshua Landis lived in Syria for years. He now teaches Middle Eastern studies at the University of Oklahoma. Landis says what he's hearing is that the rebels are optimistic. A friend of mine who was on the phone this morning to a leading rebel commander said that this is how the commander described the situation. He said, the government does not have more than 6,000 troops in Aleppo. The Shabiha, these militias pro-government, are about 2,000. But he said the rebel troops have 40,000. Now, I'm not sure that may be a bit of an exaggeration, but they claim that they far outnumber the government troops. Of course, the government troops have better arms, better communication, but they have now cut off the Damascus-Aleppo road and access from the west and, of course, access from Turkey in the north is, is cut off as well. So it's very hard for the government to resupply itself. And they are hoping that they can win the fight for downtown Aleppo. Right. And just for our listeners, uh, Aleppo is in the north of Syria, uh, not too far from the Turkish border. So, Professor Al-Azam, I mean, there's government forces and militia in the city center around the old citadel. They look pretty isolated. Are those forces now trapped? Do they have a way out? I mean, I, on the map I saw, there's only one road down to Damascus. I, I believe it's I, I don't know if tra- trapped in the sense of totally uh, trapped. I mean, they can still maneuver. They can still move out if they need to withdraw. 
But I think the, the situation is becoming more and more precarious, especially now that the opposition has been able to cut the uh, the main trunk road in several places, and in fact for large stretches. Uh, you know, the, this is a war of attrition, and I don't think the, the regime is actually really uh, winning this. And what we're hoping is that now, you know, with the U.S. elections coming to an end and with the possibility of a more united opposition politically with the forthcoming meeting in, in Doha on the 8th, of November, that this might all create the necessary, if you want, uh, the, the game changer, if you want, the necessary stimulus that would basically break this deadlock and and allow the opposition to uh, gain the upper hand. So th there's a conjunction coming, I think, that coincides with the increased activity in Aleppo and its potential all. Uh, Josh Landis, let's consider the people in those neighborhoods in Aleppo occupied uh, by the rebels today. I mean, th these are primarily Kurdish or Christian neighborhoods, and these people must be terrified of government retaliation uh, through airstrikes and artillery. I mean, we're even hearing some reports that Kurds are fighting back. What, what have you heard? Well, I've heard that, too, that Kurds are fighting back. And at first we thought that possibly the Kurds had just decided to you know, try to stay out of this. But it's like clearly a dynamic situation, and the Christians – population are terrified. One friend told me that his maid had fainted earlier in the day because the fighting was so fierce. But once these sharpshooters get to the top of your building, then they begin to set up anti-aircraft guns on the top of your building. Of course, you're waiting then for the government to come and bomb you with their air force. What about this ceasefire? I mean, uh, this was supposed to start tomorrow. Um, now what? Well, you know, both sides, it, it, this ceasefire is so... It, it seems so impossible because the situation on the ground is changing quickly. Both sides – and here we have to speak loosely. The Syrian government has said they will abide by the ceasefire if the other side stops shooting. Several of the major commanders have told Lachda Brahimi, the UN representative, that they will abide by the ceasefire if there's no shooting. But Salafist groups and more uh, Islamist groups have said that they're not going to abide by it. It's very hard to imagine how this ceasefire would work. And there are hundreds of armed groups in the opposition who don't answer to any one command and control. So it's very difficult to see how a ceasefire would really hold, mm. particularly if there's major movement in Aleppo. Professor Al-Azam, it was kind of eerie what you said earlier uh, about Syrians patiently waiting for U.S. elections on November 6th to be over, kind of with the assumption that the U.S. would lead the charge for intervention. When do you think that would happen? When would the White House start refocusing on Syria? November 7th? All indications that we have from people that I and others have spoken to in the United States government are telling us that once the elections are over, there will be a change in policy. From what we hear, it's not going to be actually a military intervention or suddenly there's going to be airstrikes or anything like that. But what most of us think is going to happen is that the U.S. will allow for the, you know, allow more arming of the rebels of the, of the opposition army uh, with, with the sort of weaponry needed to tip the balance. And I think that's going to be the game changer. And Joshua Landis, you think that's uh, overly optimistic? Well, I think it's going to take a long time. The government, the, the Syrian army is still very powerful. It has backers in Iran, Russia and China to a, a degree. It has a lot of heavy weaponry. There's still a lot of fight in this regime. But on the other hand, if, if the opposition 
manages to take the core, the heart of Aleppo, it is going to be a big boost for the opposition. People today who are talking about a stalemate, who are talking about maybe there are too many Islamists, it's being penetrated by al-Qaeda, and and have lost uh, some of the enthusiasm they had for the opposition in the beginning, will be re, in a sense, reinvigorated. And everybody likes a winner. So if the opposition can win in Aleppo, that'll be a major, major uh, change. Joshua Landis at the University of Oklahoma and director of their Middle Eastern Studies program, and Amr al-Azam, a prominent member of the Syrian opposition here in the U.S. and a professor at Shawnee State. Thank you both very much. Thank you. Pleasure. When a war leaves tens of thousands dead, it becomes a priority for many who survive to ensure that no one forgets. That's true in Syria, but also closer to home. In this hemisphere, the brutal conflicts in Colombia and Mexico come to mind. Both countries have had major drug wars fought on their territories, and both have experienced massive death tolls and disappearances. Another parallel is how hard the relatives of victims in both countries have had to struggle to get their governments to support so-called memory projects. Reporter Shannon Young is normally based in Mexico, but she traveled recently to Colombia. And she reports now on what lessons Colombia's movement for memory may hold for Mexico. Colombia has suffered from decades of political and drug-related violence. The human toll has been enormous. Yet in the once hard-hit city of Medellin, it was only last December that the mayor held a ribbon-cutting ceremony for the new House of Memory Museum. The museum is an effort to document and record the city's history of conflict so that it never happens again. Researcher Luna Blanco worked to develop some of the exhibits. Blanco says the government began to show support for the memory process around 2004. It took years to turn that support into the museum in Medellin. But government support seems to have waned. A new mayor placed a construction fence around the museum and put it in a state of operational limbo. That may be why Colombians have opted for more informal ways to remember what happened and to honor the victims of violence. In the capital, Bogotá, along 7th Avenue, a major thoroughfare leading to the main plaza, there are hand-painted memorials on light posts and modest plaques on the sides of buildings. Some of the signs commemorate victims in the very spot where they were killed. But Bogotá also has more formal memory exhibits. One exhibit, developed by the Center for Memory, Peace and Reconciliation, an institution whose members include relatives of victims, is currently making the rounds in the city's public libraries. The exhibit consists of stand-up banners printed with illustrations and stories of those killed, disappeared or displaced in Colombia's long conflict. Large maps indicate the location of specific crimes, and there's a book for visitors to share stories. Catherine Reina is the cultural program coordinator at Bogotá's Parque El Tunal Library. We've had patrons of all ages come to see the exhibit, but we've seen the greatest impact among senior citizens because they remember what happened or have a direct connection with the stories. We've held workshops here in the hall with both elders and school-aged children in order to reinforce the exhibits. So it's not just a matter of looking at the map and walking through the exhibit rooms. We want them to delve deeper. For decades, there's been an air of taboo surrounding certain aspects of the conflict in Colombia, especially when it comes to victims of political violence in which state actors are believed to be aggressors or negligent accomplices. 
With the passage of time, that taboo has somewhat faded in Colombia, thanks in part to groups which have continually found the courage to speak out in creative ways. And Luna Blanco, the memory researcher in Medellin, thinks there's a lesson there for her counterparts in Mexico. I think, if anything, it's about overcoming fear. They need to overcome fear and speak out. And of course, overcoming fear is very difficult under these types of circumstances. But that's what I would say to them. But in Mexico today, that's easier said than done. Drug-related violence in Mexico remains intense, and victims' relatives complain there's a lingering perception among officials and the media that most drug war victims are themselves criminals. Jorge Verastegui is a member of FUNDEC, an association of relatives of missing persons in the northern Mexican state of Coahuila. The government has held talks with state and local officials in attempts to change the way disappearances are handled by authorities. And their first reaction is to criminalize the victims and to intimidate those who try to speak out. Eventually, the government agrees to meet with the families, but it never comes around to recognizing the problem. Berastegui, whose brother and nephew disappeared in 2009, participates in regular gatherings in Monterrey's main plaza to embroider the stories of victims on handkerchiefs. While the purpose is to create a memorial, the weekly sewing circles have also created a space for other victims' relatives to come forward, share stories, and meet others with similar experiences. Verastegui sees it all as part of a long and slow movement towards developing an institutional memory of the conflict in Mexico. Nosotros no podemos olvidar lo que ha ocurrido. We cannot forget what happened. We have to force the government to first recognize the problem and then document what happened and what went wrong. We have to create the conditions for future generations to know what we lived through and what they shouldn't have to experience again. If Colombia's experience is any guide, it's a process that will take time, even after the violence ebbs in Mexico's brutal drug war. For The World, I'm Shannon Young. You can see Shannon's pictures from Colombia, including some with those makeshift victim memorials on the streets of Bogota. The slideshow is at theworld.org. This is PRI. The World is brought to you by PRI with support from the Medtronic Foundation, presenting the Save a Life Simulator, an interactive online experience designed to teach the public life-saving responses to sudden cardiac arrest. Each day, thousands die from cardiac arrest. Learn how to respond at heartrescuenow.com. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. President Obama, like his predecessors over the past 20 years, has signed new free trade deals with Latin America. The latest involve Panama and Colombia. But as GOP challenger says, that's not enough. Mitt Romney has been preaching more free trade with Latin America. The world's Jason Margolis explores what a President Romney could do about that. During Monday night's debate, Mitt Romney said we can do better when it comes to trade with Latin America. As a matter of fact, Latin America's economy is almost as big as the economy of China. We're all focused on China. Latin America is a huge opportunity for us. My first reaction was, well, what would the plan be? That's Kevin Gallagher, the coordinator of the Global Development Policy Program at Boston University. He says Romney's Latin American economic strategy, well, there's not much there there. What puzzles a lot of us is that the United States has a trade deal with just about every significant Latin American country except for Brazil and Argentina. 
And every president since the Clinton administration has unsuccessfully tried to do a deal with Brazil and Argentina. And I'm not sure that the Romney administration, they don't outline a plan on how they would actually do that. Gallagher says there are reasons why president after president has failed to ink free trade deals with Brazil and Argentina. The United States has refused to put agriculture on the table. We subsidize our agricultural sector, we've deregulated it, and we have tariffs on it, um, but we won't put that on the negotiating table. The second reason is that uh, when the Brazilians look around to our deals with Chile, with Mexico and others, they've, they've had mixed results. The Mexican economy has had sluggish growth since the signing of the North American Free Trade Agreement two decades ago. Beyond the two regional powerhouses, Brazil and Argentina, Mark Jones at Rice University in Houston says there are other nations that would like more trade opportunities with the U.S. If you're talking about opening markets, the only real market there is to open uh, for a next administration would be the Cuban market. And Mitt Romney has made it abundantly clear he's not interested in engaging with Cuba. He's promised to isolate the island further. So while it seems there's little Mitt Romney or any American president could do to increase trade deals with Latin America, Brian Riley says a President Romney wouldn't be powerless to stimulate trade. Riley is a senior trade policy analyst at the Conservative Heritage Foundation in Washington. So much of our trade is affected by our domestic economic policies, whether it's taxes or regulations. Of course, that brings us back to the central question of this election. Which presidential candidate has a better plan to get the domestic economy going? With respect to trade deals, I asked Riley if he thought Romney had a strong Latin American strategy, or was he just serving up sound bites? Well, I think he has a good general strategy, and what he calls his Reagan economic zone or a Western Hemisphere free trade agreement is an example of that. So that's certainly a positive I think it's premature to expect somebody to spell out all the exact details of how that would work. Mark Jones at Rice University says a Western Hemisphere free trade zone isn't realistic at all, but he gives Romney points for at least engaging on the topic. It falls a little on the side of empty promises, but at least it is demonstrating some interest uh, in Latin America, which is more than President Obama has demonstrated over the past few years. Jones adds it's a sad state of affairs when a few throwaway lines in a debate are seen as positive movement for Latin American trade relations. For The World, I'm Jason Margolis. President Obama says he saved the auto industry with bailouts when tens of thousands of American jobs were on the line. His opponent, Mitt Romney, doesn't agree and says he wanted to deal with Detroit through managed bankruptcy. Whatever the rhetoric, there's a reminder today that U.S. automakers are still struggling. Ford, the one American carmaker that did not get bailed out by the government, is shutting down some plants in Europe. The closings in Belgium and Britain will mean the loss of thousands of jobs in those countries by 2014. The BBC's Jan Mutzlian says the European economic crisis has hit the auto industry hard. There's been a massive slump in car sales in Europe this year. It's been particularly bad for the, the manufacturers that are operating in the mid-segment. So Ford, alongside with the French and the Italians who don't have export markets, and also the General Motors subsidiaries Opel and Vauxhall. And the reason behind this, it can all be traced to the Europe's economic crisis. There's just not enough expendable income for people to buy cars. There are two reasons. Uh, one of them is that the overall market is down. But the second reason is that the companies that are doing the best within this shrinking market are either 
those appealing to people on tight budgets, so the Koreans are doing very well, or they are the people who are appealing to those people who still have money. And mm. there are still quite a lot of money, even in a shrinking uh, and a, in a tough economy. Recent reports have said that Ford's Belgian production is moving to Spain and their UK production may be headed to Turkey. Uh, what might these countries be able to offer that the UK and Belgium can't? I don't think Ford's plan should be seen as a reflection of the different values of the workforces in different countries. It's just a matter of every factory they own in Europe has spare capacity. So you close down one and then you move the production from that to take up the slack in another. Mm. So it's not really that Spain or Turkey offer anything that Belgium or Britain couldn't offer. It's more that they just need to make some choices on of which operations to continue with. In the past in Europe, plant closings have been met with protests. you expect the same with these closings? During summer, when uh, Peugeot Citroën announced 8,000 job cuts and the closure of one factory, the French union said it was a declaration of war. The response to Ford's closures has been milder in the UK. The unions have merely called it a betrayal So industrial action and the sort of anger that you've seen in France is unlikely to be seen in the UK or indeed in Belgium. Finally, Jan, uh, when was the last time you bought a new car? About uh, three weeks ago. Wow. It's a funny situation, but uh, the the car makers are offering quite deep discounts at the moment because Uh of the market conditions. uh, So for many consumers, it might be a good time to buy. And there is an additional factor here. New cars have so good fuel economy compared with old cars and fuel prices in Europe have become so high. So replacing an old car with a new car could be very good economics in the market when the uh, manufacturers are offering deep discounts because of the crisis. Now, uh, we're we're not going to get any kickback for this, but I don't want you to see it as an endorsement. Uh, What kind of car was it? The car I bought was a VW Touran, but I have several cars. I'm a bit of a car guy, so (laughs) uh, it it just uh, added to the stable. Well, that's why he covers the auto industry for the BBC. Jan Mutzlian, thank you so much. My pleasure. For today's GeoQuiz, we're looking for a place that may or may not exist, South Detroit. And first, we've got to listen to this. Whoa, that's not Ali Farkas tour, eh? That's Journey. Don't stop believing. Shut the city, well, it's that line there. That was it. Just a city boy born and raised in South Detroit that we want to focus on. The Detroit Tigers play the song in their home stadium every game between the 7th and 8th innings. But check a map of Detroit, and you won't find a place called South Detroit. In fact, if you travel south from Detroit, well, you end up in another country. So if it's not technically in Detroit, where is South Detroit? That's a question we'll leave you to ponder as we rock out to the break. Listening to the world on PRI Public Radio International. I'm Marco Werman. Ahead, Chinese dissident Ai Weiwei goes all Gangnam style, and we remember comedian Jaspal Bhatti, who made his mark in India with a TV series called Flop Show. The issues that he sort of spoke about, uh, you know, are are very current and touched a chord with everybody who uh, watched these series. 
PRI's The World is supported by the Medtronic Foundation, presenting the Save-A-Life Simulator, an interactive online experience designed to teach the public life-saving responses to sudden cardiac arrest. Each day, thousands die from cardiac arrest. Learn how to respond at heartrescuenow.com. I'm Marco Werman, and this is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. Chinese activist Ai Weiwei is at it again, using art to express dissent. Only this time, he's made people scratch their heads. Ai has gone Gangnam Style. Gangnam Style! That's the relentlessly viral song and video performed by South Korean rap sensation Psy. Ai Weiwei has recorded a video of himself dancing Gangnam style, you know, mimicking horse riding and lassoing, and it stumped Chinese censors for a bit. Unsure about the video's intended messages, they blocked Internet access to the video today. Correspondent Mary Kay Magstad in Beijing says the video's title is controversial. He calls it Sauni Ma style. And there's a bit of a code going on here. Ma means horse in Chinese. In fact, Ma is also my Chinese name. So I take personal interest in this. And obviously, <laughs> he's playing off of the horse motif in Gangnam Style. But the word Sauni Ma can mean grass mud horse, which is sort of this mythical cartoon creature in China that could be a children's toy or the same words said the same way. It's an obscenity that means do something unspeakable to your mother. But it's not meant literally. It's meant as an obscenity that Chinese internet users use to say how frustrated they are with censorship in China. Right. So deeply coded indeed. Let's have a listen uh, to Gangnam Style. It's, it's the original. Uh, and then you can tell us what Ai Weiwei did with the imagery in it. Open Gangnam Style. So Mary Kay, the music is the same. The images are different. Tell us what we're seeing in it. Okay, so you've got Ai Weiwei, and he starts out the same, lying back in his easy chair, kind of like Sai, except Ai Weiwei is 55 and has a long gray beard and size 34. <laughs> and, you know, Ai is in this pink T-shirt and a satin lapel black jacket, and he gets up and he's sort of flailing around. And, you know, he's got his friends with him, both Chinese and foreign. And uh, about a minute into the video, he brings out a pair of handcuffs, and then he's dancing handcuffed to a young guy in, in brightly colored suit, kind of like in the Gangnam Style video. But obviously, in this version, the level of creativity is sort of lacking, you know, lacking because <laughs> they can't move like Koreans can move. They don't have the freedom the Koreans have. Interesting. The last couple of days, though, Mary Kay, uh, gather the Chinese censors weren't quite sure what to do with this video, but now they've banned it. What have they understood about it that the rest of the world doesn't? I think what they understand is that Ai Weiwei, in their mind, is a troublemaker, and it's two weeks before the beginning of the party congress when there will be a leadership transition. And if a lot of people are paying attention to this video, it must be something they don't want people to see. You know, it's one thing for countries outside Asia catapulting Psy to number one on pop charts. There's kind of this unexpected novelty with this Korean who's throwing down big time with a horse dance. But is Psy also <laughs> a big hit in China? 
You know, he is. And in fact, Korean pop in general is very popular in China and has been for years. And in fact, it's quite frustrating to the Chinese government because it's really been trying to figure out how do we have more soft power in the world? How do we get people to want to emulate our culture and be like us? And so they've been spending billions of dollars on Chinese central television outreach to other parts of the world. And then you get this pudgy rap star who comes along out of Korea and has 530 million hits for this fun little video. And not only does he get all these hits, but Korean companies are doing better. And in general, you know, people are looking at South Korea and thinking, hey, these guys are fun. You know, we want to have more connections with them. The Chinese government would love to have that kind of a response to what they're doing. They're not getting it. All right. I mean, even yesterday, uh, Ban Ki-moon, the U.N. Secretary General, met Tsai and did the horse dance with him. I mean, well, did part of the horse dance. His, his arms were sort of, you know, moving a little bit along with Sai, but I, he didn't move his legs. I mean, I think he felt he, he needed to maintain the dignity of the office. Correspondent Mary Kay Magsad in Beijing. Thanks very much. Thanks, Marco. You can see Ai Weiwei's Gangnam Style parody video at theworld.org. Okay, so I bike to work, but when New England winter sets in, I don't bike. I take the bus because the snow and ice make it too treacherous to ride a bicycle. Too bad I don't live in the Netherlands. There's a plan there to heat the country's bike lanes. Here's the world's Clark Boyd. Okay, some facts. The Netherlands has around 17 million people and an estimated 18 million bikes. The country boasts more than 20,000 miles. That's 20,000 miles of bike lanes. The first time I visited the Dutch city of Utrecht, I lived in constant fear of being run over, not by the cars, but by the bikes. We sometimes have uh, traffic jams uh, with the word bicycle. There are uh, bicycle paths with five to 10,000 cyclists a day. Marcel Boerefijn works for an environmental consulting firm in the Utrecht area and uses his bike a lot. To go to my work, to go to school, to catch the children, and I uh, cycle as well on a race bike. Burafine says that he even tries to cycle during the winter when the roads are icy and dangerous. He figures there's a 30 to 40 percent drop-off in overall bike use during the colder months. And so he and his firm have proposed a solution. Just like you can heat, say, a bathroom floor with pumped hot water. Underneath the asphalt, uh, say five centimeters below the asphalt, we install pipes. Uh, Through those pipes flows groundwater. Yes, heated bike lanes. Sounds like a luxury, right? But Burefein says thousands of Dutch buildings already use this type of system. You need two wells, one to hold cold water and one for hot water, and a pump. During the summer, cold water is pumped up just under the asphalt. It's heated to around 65 degrees by the summer sun and then stored in the hot well. Come winter, the warm water would be pumped back up, melting the snow and ice off the bike lane. Burafine figures installing bike paths with this system will cost twice as much as normal lanes, maybe up to $84,000 per mile. But, he says... The cost-saving comes from that we don't have to use any salt and the labor to uh, spread the salt. Burafine also says that there would be fewer nasty winter bike accidents. And then there's the environmental benefit. He's hoping clear bike lanes would mean more bikes on the winter roads and fewer cars. His company hopes to begin a small feasibility study sometime next year. For others in Europe, heated bike lanes, though, will always seem an unnecessary luxury. When I tweeted the Dutch story this morning, a Finnish buddy of mine replied, Tender feet, mid-Europeans. Just get bike tires with 600 studs, and you'll have no problems with ice or snow. you got to love the way they roll way up north. For the world, this is Clark Boyd.
Mm, the Finns apparently have a just get on with it kind of attitude. You can see that with the British, too. They have that Downton Abbey, keep calm and carry on, grin and bear it thing going on. You know, the stiff upper lip. At least that's their reputation. There's evidence, though, that it's slipping somewhat. So how did Britain get its stiff upper lip? And has it always been there? The world's Patrick Cox reports. A funny thing happened at Wimbledon this year. Andy Murray cried. Right, I'm going to try this and it's not going to be easy. Murray was a moderately popular tennis player, but Britons hadn't really embraced him. Not until he lost the final and spoke on court afterwards. The people watching, they make it so much easier to play. The support has been, been incredible, so thank you. From that moment on, the British public no longer merely admired Murray, they loved him. Now, if he'd burst into tears in an earlier era, he might have been mocked and shunned. Well, actually, it depends how far back you go in British history. There was a time, long before those stern Victorians, when Britain was a nation that wept, and wept a lot. People are complaining that the British are just sitting around crying all the time and thoroughly wet. This is journalist Ian Hislop, who's been researching British emotional life. The evidence for this heart-on-the-sleeve behaviour comes from notes and diaries of Italians, Dutchmen and other Europeans who visited Britain in the 17th and 18th centuries. A proper man and a refined woman would display their emotions openly. They would cry and you weren't a civilised person if you didn't. It was ingrained in the culture, books were written about it, codes of behaviour taught. So what changed, what transformed the British character into the more familiar one of restraint and unflappability? I think it was the French Revolution. 1789, right across the English Channel. The British watched, essentially, some foreigners getting very, very excitable, out of control, passions unleashed, and look what happened. What happened was the rise of Napoleon and decades of war. The British reacted against Napoleon, a man who wore perfume and looked at art, with their own military hero. They came up with the Duke of Wellington, a man of discipline who spurned creature comforts, Wellington then vanquished Napoleon. The British Empire thrived, and self-restraint became its emotional expression. It served the empire well. The British came to see their rule abroad not as repressive, but as a mission, a civilizing mission. Charles Darwin, better known for other observations, declared that Englishmen rarely cry, implying that everyone else did a little too much. Thomas Dixon, director of the Centre for the History of Emotions at the University of London, says many British men at the time put themselves through feats of endurance. Exploration, swimming the channel, climbing mountains, trying to find the source of the Nile and so on. They were an extreme version of the stiff upper lip, proving that the Anglo-Saxon male could achieve anything, could suffer anything, uh, and come out the other end robust and manly. As for women, they were praised for putting up with so much in silence. That's what all the, the literature about women in this period says. Uh, this is a very backhanded compliment, of course, to say to women, you're so great at suffering and having no power, please carry on doing it. But that didn't last forever. Women demanded the vote and got it. And after World War I, when so many men died because they followed the orders of incompetent officers, grinning and bearing it seemed to have lost its appeal. But after a few years of social rebellion and lots of partying, along came a second Napoleon, Hitler. Never in history has an entire people borne so frightful an ordeal so bravely. Yes, England can take it. The propaganda machine was all about the stiff upper lip. 
This is Joanna Bork, a historian at the University of London. There's a wonderful film called Fires Were Started, where this woman, she's on the telephone, and all of a sudden a bomb drops just behind her, and she dives under the table. Then just a second later, you see her crawling out, and she carries on doing her business. Oh, yes, I'm sorry for the interruption. We have another message for you. This version of the stiff upper lip was admired around the world, especially in the U.S. It survives today, at least in how the world views Britons, people who just get on with life, who kept calm and carried on through the bombings of the IRA in the 1970s and the London terrorist attacks in 2005. The British who don't grumble, even while not grumbling, make a point of saying mustn't grumble. Still, modern life has dealt blow after blow to the stiff upper lip. Things like TV, therapy, and America. Before their influence, the lip has drooped, says Thomas Dixon of the Center for the History of the Emotions. I think the most powerful arguments against the stiff upper lip were really medical ones. It was bad for you, both physically and mentally. Having a stiff upper lip, being repressed, was bad for you. Brits were learning to let it all hang out, a little later than in the U.S., says journalist Ian Hislop, and with the help of one key figure. It hit its high point with Diana, which everyone said, well, that's it. We, we let it hang out publicly. Goodbye, Rose. May you ever grow in our hearts. You are the grace that placed It's well documented that when Diana, Princess of Wales, died, millions of Britons cast aside what was often described as their natural reserve and wept openly. They wept for someone who seemed to personify the new Britain, open, emotional, confessional. She seemed at war with the old order, stuffy, formal, cold. It was enough to make many Britons wonder just exactly what the national character was – That questioning continues to this day, with episodes like Andy Murray's Wimbledon Tears. But Ian Hislop says, don't be fooled. The stiff upper lip is part of the British character, in a good way, even if its beginnings in the 19th century were less benign. The flaws with the stiff upper lip do include it being used as as a method of social control. Don't complain, carry on. The empire swagger of the 19th century never returned. The Second World War, it's not the same. It's the stiff upper lip with a smile. It's the cheeky chappy who carries on. Now it's evolved into the stiff upper lip with a tear, just once in every while. Hislop is convinced that it'll keep evolving. I'm sure we will adapt it. There won't be deference included, but I think there could still be an ability to survive, which in serious times requires a certain amount of keeping it together. Hislop says that if he's wrong, if the stiff upper lip is already consigned to history, that's fine. No point in making a fuss about it. Just deal with it and get on with life. For The World, I'm Patrick Cox. Stiff up a lip, stout fella, carry on old beam. Chin up, keep muddling through. Stiff up a lip, stout fella, dash it all I mean. Pip, pip, do old man trouble and a toodaloo do. Carry on through thick and thin. If you feel you're in the right, does the fighting spirit win? Oh, quite, 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 quite. Stiff up a lip, stout fella, when you're in a stew. Sober a plato, this is the motto, keep modeling through.
Next week and through the elections, I'll be in London. So when all the British journalists are here covering the vote, stiff upper lips or not, I'll be there looking in from outside the bubble, trying to find out what people around the globe think of the election, people who don't have a vote but do have a lot at stake. And if you're from somewhere other than the U.S., we want to hear from you. Tell us how the election looks to you at theworld.org slash elections. Just look for the big orange record button. And if you want to do this on Twitter, we tweet at PRI the world and use the hashtag the world votes. This is PRI. The world is brought to you by PRI with support from WGBH, producers of Market Warriors, from the people that brought you Antiques Roadshow. Four pickers scour flea markets nationwide, hoping to outprofit their competitors at auction. Don't miss Market Warriors, Monday night at 9, 8 Central on PBS. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. The World Series is underway. The San Francisco Giants took a one-game lead last night over the Detroit Tigers. David Lingholm is a Tigers fan and Detroit blogger, and he's offered to answer today's geo-quiz. Dave, I hear you regularly go out to the Comerica ballpark and uh, have heard the tune by Journey a few times. It's played in the stadium. What's the usual reaction of fans when that song gets played? It's really funny. Right in between the seventh and eighth innings, everybody stops whatever they're doing when the song comes on. And as soon as the line South Detroit comes up, everybody screams it at the top of their lungs. And then goes back about their business, getting ready for the next inning. But that's the kind of curious part of this, because uh, there is a part of the city known as South Detroit. Where is it? Well, uh, technically, it's Windsor, which is in Ontario, Canada. That's actually what is south of Detroit once you cross the river, which is really South Detroit. Exactly. From my apartment, looking across the Detroit River, I can see a foreign country. Wow. You're not just like, you know, aping Sarah Palin there. You can actually see Canada from your house. Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) Okay. So the answer to the GeoQuiz today is Windsor, Ontario. You've written about this uh, confusing geography of South Detroit. Uh, Do you have any idea how Steve Perry of Journey got this idea that uh, a kid is uh, born and raised in South Detroit in the first place? Well, you know, the way he described it a couple years ago was actually kind of interesting. He said, I tried North Detroit, I tried East and West, and it just didn't sing. But South Detroit sounded so beautiful. And he was writing the, the entire song on his way out of Detroit after performing a concert here. And, and you know, the guy is still loved around here, even though he didn't recognize that really there is no South Detroit. And to make things really confusing, apparently the San Francisco Giants also uh, play this tune a lot because Journey is from San Francisco. And I hope that there are a lot of Tiger fans in the audience at AT AT&T Park tonight so they can (laughs) scream out South Detroit whenever appropriate. I I gather this is quite an inside joke in Detroit. What about people in Windsor, Ontario? How do they feel about being hailed as South Detroiters even though they're not. You know, from from the few that I know, they actually think it's pretty funny. And there was a guy here locally that tried to create a T-shirt of South Detroit, and it's got the big maple leaf like you would see in the Canadian flag on it. Mm. And you know, the reaction that I get from Windsorites whenever I'm wearing the shirt's pretty funny. They think it's hysterical. But I bet those guys <laughs> who come over from Windsor, they hear that line, just a city boy born and raised in South Detroit. They're patting their shoulders going, yeah, that's me. I'm pretty sure they are. <laughs> 
Well, uh, l- let's talk about uh, what's next for the Detroit Tigers. Um, can the Tigers bounce back? I mean, when they get to San Francisco, they'll hear Don't Stop Believing. That should create some comfort zone for them. You know, you'd hope so, because I think the strength the Detroit Tigers really have in this series is that front line. It's that starting pitching. Uh, tonight, Doug Fister is on the hill for the Tigers, and his pitches have a lot of good late movement. So I have trouble believing the Giants are going to be able to tee off the way they were mm. last night. And let me tell you, last night was an anomaly. That okay. is not what we're used to out of Justin Verlander here. So we're, we're pretty confident when game five comes back to Detroit, he's going to be ready and able to win that game for us. David Lingholm, a freelance journalist in Detroit, born and raised in South Detroit? Uh, moved here about 20 years ago, and there is oddly no place that I'd rather be. Dave, thanks so much. Thank you. And finally today, one of the most popular comedians on Indian television has died. Jaspal Bhatti was killed in a car accident in India. He was 57. He was known for his 1980s TV series Flop Show, which took a satirical look at the problems faced by middle-class families in India. Today, Bhatti is being remembered by Bollywood film stars, Indian politicians, and by our own Rahul Joglaker. He's a producer at the World's London office. Rahul, I gather you grew up watching Jaspal Bhatti on TV in the same way that many Americans grew up watching Bill Cosby in the 80s. Is that kind of even an accurate reference point? Oh, yes, absolutely, Marco. You know, Jaspal Bhatti uh, was a very popular television comedian. And, you know, when I look back at these episodes, the production values weren't all that great. And, uh, you know, the costumes were a bit shabby. But the issues that he sort of spoke about, uh, you know, are are very current and touched a chord with everybody who uh, watched these series. Well, we actually have a clip from uh, Flop Show. Uh, It's in Hindi. So we'll, we'll play a bit of it and then you can help us out to the meaning. It sounds a little like a sitcom without the laugh track or maybe, you know, The Office where nobody's getting that live laughing going on. What is what is happening in this scene? Absolutely. Uh, you know, I mean, even when I listen to this clip, uh, it, it brings a smile to my face. You know, this is one of the episodes where uh, he's discussing, uh, you know, this problem that uh, often India's bureaucracy would have with these meetings and subcommittees. So, and, you know, in this particular episode, uh, he is a government official and, you know, his secretary comes to him and says that, listen, there's nobody available in this department to hold a meeting because they're all holding various other meetings. Uh, so, you know, he then holds a meeting to discuss discuss how should they have a meeting with the chairman. And, you know, they, they discuss things like, uh, you know, what kind of tea will be served and whether there's going to be samosas and what kind of samosas should be there. And then, you know, he comes out at the end of the episode and says, oh, you know, we've made brilliant progress. We have decided on the date. And a reporter sort of asks him, what, what is that date? And he says, this is the date for the next meeting. So... <laughs> I can see how he kind of sticks it to power and authority and, and corruption. Absolutely. And, 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 you know, this was uh, something that, that wasn't done on Indian television. This was uh, state-controlled TV. And, uh, you know, government and bureaucrats were absolutely holy cows. And attacking them on state-controlled television was unthinkable. And all of a sudden, the show comes along that, you know, is undoing all of that propaganda. So I think that's something that was really unique about this show. And, of course, today on Indian TV, there are scams and corruptions being discussed all the time. But, you know, back then, this was very, very new. Now, uh, Jaspal Bhatti achieved fame beyond Flop Show. He had a new film. It's coming out uh, tomorrow, in fact, called Power Cut. With this beloved comic now gone, what do you think the reception for the film is going to be? 
The reception for the film, uh, well, of course, you know, this is a film that again talks about, I don't know, Marco, if you remember, but a few months ago, there was uh, this big power failure in India where about 600 million people uh, were without power for I one did, long, yeah, yeah for, 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 a, for a whole day and, and, and beyond. And, uh, you know, this is an ideal situation for Jaspal Bhatti to exploit. You know, this mm-hmm. is the kind of stuff that, uh, that that he lives on. What's really also important to point out is Mr. Bhatti's uh, activities outside of TV and film. You know, this is uh, a comedian who wore the hat of an activist. He'd uh, launch political parties before elections, you know, something what he called the suitcase party. Mm-hmm. Uh, suitcase being the symbol of, uh, you know, bribes that are given to government gotcha. and, and bureaucrats. You know, uh, it's, it's stuff like that that Mr. Bhatti he will always be remembered for. Well, Rahul, thank you for sharing your memories of Indian comedian Jaspal Bhatti, who sadly died today in a car accident. Rahul Joklaker, a producer for The World in London. You can watch an episode of Flop Show at theworld.org. Right now, though, we leave you with the show's theme song from the Nan and Bill Harris Studios at WGBH. I'm Marco Werman. Thanks for listening. The World is a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston, supported in part by the National Endowment for the Arts, which believes that a great nation deserves great art. The Rita Allen Foundation, investing in transformative ideas in their earliest stages to leverage their growth and promote breakthrough solutions to significant problems. Online at RitaAllen.org. And by the WGBH Fund for Environmental Reporting, whose donors include the Grantham Foundation for the Protection of the Environment, supporting a cooperative approach to solving our critical environmental problems while we still can. PRI Public Radio International.